It's Herb Alpert, the Team One of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. He joins us every week, and this is a new week, and therefore he is joining us. And that is why and what he's going to do in the audio that follows is uh, is analyze all baseball. Uh, that is a thing that he does. It's, uh, it's his vocation in life, and we have him live on tape uh, doing that. In particular, uh, you might guess... He does discuss at some length the R.A. Dickey trade uh, uh, that sends R.A. Dickey. Well, you know what it does. It goes. He goes from the Mets to the Blue Jays. I force him to talk about that. I force him to talk about some other things, uh, some key words. Uh, Josh Hamilton. What else? Uh, oh, Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, starters, relievers, valuation. Maybe I say valuation at one point. Uh, listen, so that's uh, Steve Cameron is about to, uh, to join us. And I also want to say... It's uh, uh, the holiday season. You have money burning a hole in your pocket. You have uh, it's hot money. Somehow you have this hot money, and it's uh, you want to protect your pocket. So maybe get rid of that money. A great thing to do with that money uh, um, is to spend it on the Hardball Times. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, annual. I get choked up just thinking about it. About how good it is. I have uh, multiple uh, copies in my house. I read uh, all of them. Uh, different times, <clears throat> I yeah, see very emotional. Uh, you can use your money. You go to uh, Amazon. Uh, you go to Amazon. You type in uh, Hardball Times Annual. Great stuff in there. Uh, Craig Calcaterra has uh, has writing in it. Dave Cameron, our own, the same guy you're going to hear, uh, and then uh, a bunch of other people too. Eno Saris, do you like Eno Saris? He's in there too. Uh, he's he's gonna he writes something about that uh, Stanford. Uh, it's very nice. It's a very nice publication. Uh, and uh, it uh, benefits uh, it benefits us actually really it's not like a charity or anything it benefits us and uh, helps make fan graphs and uh, also our partners uh, the, the Harbaugh Times helps make us solvent and uh, that's what everyone is needs these days to be solvent uh, so take that money that's burning the hole in your pocket uh, take it out of your pocket uh, save your pants your trousers and uh, spend the money on the book uh, um, um, I said that now. Let's get to, to, to uh, Fangraphs Audio uh, featuring Dave Cameron uh, right now. Uh, let's see. Spe- uh, speaking of the future, professional segue uh, is currently happening right now, Dave Cameron. It is. It is. This is what a, this is what a professional segue sounds like. Uh, the Blue Jays have, I think, um, implicitly stated their intentions about the future. If you were to if you were to characterize them, because I trust you to do such a thing, how would you characterize how they are treating the future at this point? Well, I think they're very clearly buying into the future is now cliche, uh, and they're looking at what the rest of their division is doing with the Yankees trying to cut their payroll and the Red Sox coming to Florida rebuilding and the Rays trading away James Shields and constantly looking down the line at the uh, expense of maybe making one short-term run, and they see a division that's, you know, ripe for winning for once. I think they're, uh, they are understanding that usually the Red Sox and Yankees aren't going to give them this kind of opportunity to just take the division, and, and they're going to try and take that opportunity while it's real. Yeah, well, okay, so with regard to that, I mean, obviously the, the, the Blue Jays since Anthopoulos uh, became the GM, they've made what, what appear to be a number of smart moves. Uh, they've also haven't really spent a ton or been particularly aggressive with trading prospects. They have been that this year. Do you think that this was inevitable anyway, or 
or, or I should say, to what degree do you think that the weakness or relative weakness of the Yankees and Red Sox uh, has maybe sped up their timeline? My guess is they were going to do something like this anyway, but they probably were encouraged to do it this winter because of what the Yankees were doing. I mean, the Yankees kind of telegraphed their plans. They've been telling teams for a while that they wanted to get on the lug, under the luxury tax, and you know it's been pretty clear that they were going to um, kind of take 2013 as a you know a little bit of a consolidation year and not spend as much as they usually do. Um, so I think you know for the Blue Jays, they were probably leaning towards making this kind of push at some point. And what, you know, the Yankees' plans and the Red Sox dumping of Adrian Gonzalez and all those other contracts probably helped encourage them to uh, do it this year rather than waiting another 6 to 12 months. Okay, so let's uh, let's discuss the, the most recent trade, and, and we'll get into uh, the sort of meaning of this, especially relative to um, the trade we discussed, I think, just last week uh, between the Royals and Rays. You had some, uh, some smart thoughts on that in your piece from the weekend. Uh, what has happened is uh, the, the Blue Jays, have sent, uh, let's see, uh, looks like Travis Darno. I believe I'm saying that correctly, Travis Darno, who is a uh, high-level catching prospect, uh, Noah Syndergaard, who is uh, is just a Danish person. He's not. A, he's just a Danish person <laughs> in there. Or, and a pitcher, and a, right, a, a talented right-handed pitcher, but not right on the cusp of uh, becoming a major leaguer, and then John Buck, uh, and, and a prospect of some sort. Uh, going the other way is Josh Tolle and R.A. Dickey. Uh, and a prospect of some sort. We don't know the exact uh, prospect going each way, so I think it's tough to say, you know, for sure uh, what those guys are going to even out. I and mean, it could be that the Mets are getting a better prospect, could be the Blue Jays are getting other prospects. But I mean, the, the basics of the deal are pretty much known. But we don't we don't know who the extra players in the deal is. And you know, it hasn't been reported. But I wouldn't be totally shocked if Lucas Duda ended up being in the deal somehow because he would make a decent amount of sense for Toronto as an Adam Lind. Uh, replacement and the Mets have no use for another, you know, DH type. Uh, right, because they they have well, first of all, because there's no DH in the National League. Second of all, right. they already have like seven first basemen in their starting lineup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I you know, I have no inside knowledge, and you know, for all I know, the the deal will be completed without Duda. But uh, the whole time when they were talking this weekend, I kept expecting Duda's name to pop up because he does make some sense for Toronto and the Mets don't need it. Okay, well, let's talk about first of all, uh, b- what made this trade happen in the in the first place, which was the fact that the Mets, uh, for various reasons, and I'm curious to hear to hear your thoughts on this, uh, have not been willing to meet uh, Dickey's, what we might argue, pretty muted demands uh, with regard to signing an extension. Are, are, are those demands as muted as I'm suggesting they are? And why didn't the Mets uh, want to pay him that much? Yeah, I think now that we see what they can get in trade for him, and they probably were aware that they could get something like this, you know, a while ago, it becomes clear, or at least suggests, that the Mets weren't so reticent about signing Dickey as much as they just preferred the prospects they could get back in return. So rather than signing Dickey and then trading him, which would have been seen as, uh, you know, some kind of crime against humanity, and that fan would not have taken that very well at all, uh, Dickey probably wouldn't have taken that very well at all. Uh, they couldn't really sign him and then trade him. That would have been seen as uh, a pretty significant betrayal, um, maybe to both the fan base and to Dickey himself. So if they were going to trade him, they couldn't really sign him first. They needed him to sign the extension with the new team. They needed to give him that opportunity to choose uh, to stay with the team that was going to trade for him. Um, so it seems like they were maybe intentionally lowballing him in order to make sure that a, that a deal didn't get done so that they could trade him. And uh, it seems like they just evaluated their options of keeping Dickey for three years or getting the prospects that he would command in trade, and they decided they'd rather have the prospects 
given what they got and where they are in, you know, the win curve, it's not, probably not a terrible decision. I think keeping Dickey could have been justifiable as well. I wrote about that a few weeks ago. But, you know, if Darno is what people say he is, and I'm not 100% sure that he is, but if he is a, you know, a frontline major league starting pitcher, then this is probably a win for the Mets. Yeah, I mean, with regard to what you've heard about Darno, I mean, besides just uh, good, uh, what what can we expect and what has uh, maybe prospects uh, that have been described similarly to him, what is their, uh, you know, their rate of success in the majors? Yeah, if, if Darno seems like a guy who probably doesn't have a single standout, to, but he's expected to be above average in a, at a number of things. Um, I think, you know, he's not one of these catchers who – you look at and say, well, maybe he's an outfielder, maybe he's a first baseman. Uh, he's expected to be able to stay behind the plate. Uh, you know, he did have knee surgery last year, but assuming that doesn't destroy his ability to crouch for long periods of time, he is supposed to be a long-term catcher. He does have some power. I mean, it's a, it's a little tough to project power for any hitter who's spent a significant time in Vegas, uh, where Darno killed the ball last year. I mean, he killed the ball on the road in the PCL, too, but the PCL was a, you know, league of environments of crazy offense. So, um, you have to take all of his numbers last year with large grains of salt, but he hit well in double the year before, uh, hit for some power. You know, there's an, an overly aggressive approach in the minor league where he doesn't walk much, he strikes out a decent amount. So, you know, I, I don't want to scare Mets fans too much, but you can look at Darno's numbers and look at JPR and CBS numbers and see kind of similarities they came up through the minors and you see what RNCB has turned into. That is a possible career path for Darno. Um, so, you know, I don't think that we should just plan on him being a, you know, Buster Posey frontline all-star major league catcher. Uh, seems like the potential is there for him to be a solid, you know, three to four win catcher. Um, but, you know, if his approach is a problematic and his numbers have been inflated by minor league parks and, uh, the power doesn't play quite as much as, uh, you know, people might think, then, you know, he might end up being more of a decent player, a Ryan Dumit with better defense. Ooh. Okay, yeah, Ryan Doom. Uh, well, Ryan Doomit's not bad. Um, He's not bad, right? But I, mean, I don't think you would you would say Ryan Doomit was better defense as a franchise player either. Right. Um, now, uh, with regard to the to the Mets' uh, reluctance to sign Dickey, is is this because that they're probably not going to be uh, winning in the la- next couple of years? And that certainly has something to do with it. I think if they were a 95-win team, they wouldn't be trading Dickey, uh, regardless of the offers they were getting. Um, so I think, you know, realistically, they know they're rebuilding. They have, you know, Zach Wheeler coming, and, uh, you know, Matt Harvey got to the majors, but, you know, he's still young. And they've got a young core of pitchers coming. Uh, you know, I think they're hopeful that John Neese will turn into more than he is right now. <clears throat> but I think overall, they're, they're probably not prepared to win in 2013, and, you know, that's where Dickey has the most value. Um, and, you know, there is some realistic... Uh, aspect of, of Dickey's aging curve that we just don't really know. Uh, we've never seen a fast knuckleball pitcher before. We've never seen a guy who throws his knuckle as hard as Dickey does. We don't really know how he's going to age. Um, we can make some guesses based on previous knuckleballers or previous pitchers who've just been this good at this, at this age and assume he's going to be pretty good for a little while, but we don't really know. So they, they turned a, a little bit of a, a lottery ticket into a couple other lottery tickets. And, you know, I think for the Mets, quantity might be more important than quality at this point. Okay, and then uh, for the Blue Jays, though, it, we've sort of gestured towards this. Uh, uh, they made a trade for a frontline pitcher, right? Uh, I mean, whether we say he's he's worse or, or better than James Shields, um, whom, the, whom the Royals recently acquired, I think we can say that they're both, you know, you can make a case for both of them being a legitimate number one on a team. Uh, if not, then a very good number two. What is the What is the distinction that you're making? Because we talked about this last week with the Rays. And the Royals, where the Royals uh, were forced to give up Will Myers, 
uh, to the race in, in a couple other pieces to acquire, uh, most notably James Shields. In this case, Darno is probably that same thing. Uh, Darno is probably Will Myers. Um, but I think that you made a, a, a more positive uh, argument on behalf of the, the, uh, the Blue Jays in their trade uh, than you did for the Royals. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the post I wrote this weekend, I think what I was trying to point out is, you know, I don't love this trade for Toronto. They're paying a really high price. I don't think this is, you know, the steal of all steals. This isn't, you know, Alex Meyer for Denard's fan. This is, you know, Toronto paying a premium price for a premium player, uh, and it could certainly come back to haunt them. But the reason I'm not killing them like I did the Royals is because of what they did before they acquired Dickey. And, and I think really when you look at the Toronto trade, um, that's basically the difference between the, the two off-seasons. I mean, you can look at Melky Cabrera and Meister Estris as kind of similar to Jeremy Guthrie and Irvin Santana, and, like, guys with some upside and some question marks who, you know, could be solid short, short-term stop gaps and, um, you know, might turn into average players. Melky might be a better than average player, but there's, you know, some significant questions around all four of those guys, really. Uh, but that was the Royals' entire off-season before they acquired James Shields. The Blue Jays, in between bringing in a couple of solid top gap guys with question marks, acquired the entire Marlins roster. And you look at Jose Reyes and Mark Murley and Josh Johnson and Emilio Bonifacio, that's 10 or 11 wins right there. I mean, the, the, you know, that upgrade of those four players is substantial and pushes the Blue Jays from being a, you know, a decent team with some, some holes and some interesting pieces into being a pretty well-rounded roster that can win 90 to 95 games and you could, you know, see them winning the World Series. And so, I think when you see what Anthopoulos did before making the big move and before giving up the future in order to get one piece, he put his team in a position where that one piece could make the difference between not making the playoffs and winning the World Series. With the Royals, that one piece is probably the difference between not making the playoffs and not making the playoffs with a better record. Right, and neither of those are particularly uh, great. I mean, this is something we've discussed, uh, and that you, um, of which you're a big proponent, is is not losing, right? Right. I mean, every every fan, certainly every team, feels that way. But teams will sort of telegraph uh, their, I guess, their expectations or the, the, you know, their sort of assessments of their own standing. Um, and you say, well, with the Marlins, maybe they would have a, uh, have had a chance to uh, to compete in the in the NL East this year. Um, but what you're suggesting is the Royals are are so far away from that um, from that sort of threshold, I guess, that that it doesn't make sense for a club like that. Yeah, I mean, I think what we need to recognize, and you know, my argument against losing is, is generally to remind people that the marginal value of any win is still greater than zero. A lot of people like to treat all wins below, you know, number 85 or 86 as totally worthless and think that there's no difference between winning 65 games and 85 games. That's not true. And, you know, James Shields will help the Royals. James Shields is worth something to the Royals. I wouldn't have had any problem with the Royals trading for James Shields if they didn't give up Will Myers, if they were able to get him for, you know, Christian Cologne and some low-level prospects. I would have hailed that trade for the Royals, even though it wouldn't have put them over the top. I think what we need to keep in mind is that marginal value of a win increases sharply as the win curve goes up around that 85 to 92 win range. So teams are incentivized to pay more for those wins as they get into that peak of the win curve. Uh, the fact that the Royals probably aren't at that peak means they should have been less incentivized in order to make this kind of trade. The Blue Jays are. So the Blue Jays' return on investment is simply going to be higher because of the talent they have around R.A. Dickey than the Royals will be because of the talent they have around James Shields. Hey, so listen, uh, today uh, in the Daily Notes column, I published uh, um, the results to uh, to this point of um, of – the contracts, uh, the contract crowdsourcing revolts, uh, results, both from um, what the crowd produced, 
and then relative to the actual contract values that the uh, relevant players have been given. Um, and I'm curious as, as to whether this speaks to your point or not. It does appear as though the crowd, um, while um, while rather accurate in the sort of uh, more the, the contracts for uh, lower end players or or even average players, um, has come up short by you know three, five, six million dollars uh, when it uh, uh, on per average annual value. So so you know this is uh, not on the life of the contract. This is just each year. But like Josh Hamilton. He signed a five-year, $125 million deal. The uh, the crowd was only predicting uh, something more like five and 20. Uh, Zach Greinke, of course, signed, uh, what, six, 147? Is that right? Yeah. So, something like that. And the crowd predicted six, uh, 106 or something like that. So that's an average annual value of 18.6. I'm curious as to whether um, this is um, this is because of the uh, that marginal value. Um the marginal value of, of a win in this particular case, or if this is just uh, the, uh, a different bias that the crowd's exhibiting? Yeah, I mean, I think when, when, when the results were released, uh, you know, when we wrote up the, the different uh, projections for each player, I think we noted that we thought the estimates were low. Um, so I, I don't think it's a huge surprise that the crowd missed a little bit on the upper end guys, because really when they were released, I, I thought they were too low, and I thought these guys would sign for more than, than what the crowd was estimating. I think I've been really impressed at how well the crowd has done on the non-stars. I mean, they've nailed a lot of these guys. Um, you know, I was uh, wrong on Mike Napoli, where the crowd was pretty much right on with him. I mean, there were several of these contracts that they, they nailed that weren't obvious. The Melky Cabrera getting 216, and that one didn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's exactly what he got. Um, so I think overall the crowd's done a really good job, but they were just a little too conservative in understanding, you know, what the kind of players that, get into bidding wars with big market, you know, new TV contract kind of teams are going for. When you look at, you know, the Dodgers and Rangers and Angels bidding on Zach Greinke, uh, it was just tough to see him going for, you know, about the same annual average value as what Honorable Sanchez just got. Um, so I think, you know, overall, the, the crowd did really well, but they did underestimate uh, the power of a bidding war between teams watched with money. Um. Now let me ask you: We, we haven't. Uh, Josh Hamilton has happened. Also, his signing with the Angels has happened. Uh, in the meantime, uh, that was uh, that was surprising to me, I guess, especially after the um, the sort of windfall of uh, spending last year uh, that saw you know Pujols and C.J. Wilson join the Angels. It didn't seem like they would necessarily have room uh, to make such a um, to make such a large commitment again. Um, and I guess just anecdotally, I. Uh, and maybe this is, goes back to when they had Tory Hunter as well. I'd sort of seen them as a team that did not have room in their outfield, although I guess you can make room uh, if a player is going to be considerably above average. Uh, a, was it surprising to you? And B, uh, I guess I'll, same question as, as I asked you about the Blue Jays. Um, what does this say about the Angels' uh, impressions of the future? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to your first point, I don't think the Angels actually increased their payroll that much. I think, you know, it's interesting to see people freaking out about the Angels spending and saying, Man, is there no limit to the amount of money they'll throw around? They find pools well from last year, and now Hamilton. Uh, but they got rid of Tory Hunter, Dan Aaron, and Irvin Santana. I, I think like people aren't really understanding that they've essentially reallocated money more than increased their overall budget. I mean, Tory, I mean, Tory Hunter made 18 million last year. Uh, Dan Aaron made 12. I think Irvin Santana made like 10. Um, so you know, they jettisoned three. Uh, highly paid players, and so far they've replaced them with Josh Hamilton, Tommy Hampson, Ryan Madsen, uh, and Joe Blanton. So, you know, there's one high-priced guy came back, and then a bunch of lower-cost guys basically taking up the payroll space 
uh, of the players who they, they lost. So I don't really see this as a huge expenditure from the, the Angels that shows that they're just going to continue spending money forever. I think they just took the money of, of guys that they paid last year and gave it to a different set of guys this year. Um, I do think, you know, that it's interesting that they signed an outfielder and that they already had three pretty decent outfielders. Um, but, you know, I think there's probably a market for Peter Burgess and, and Mark Trumbo, um, and maybe a pretty decent one. And so if they looked at their options and said, I can either turn one of these guys into a pretty decent young starting pitcher to fill out my rotation uh, and sign Hamilton and replace them and get an upgrade at two spots, or I can try and, you know, outbid the Tigers for Audible Sanchez or, you know, go after Kyle Loesch or Edwin Jackson or one of these pitchers who I don't think is quite as good. You know, there's some there's some rationale behind this. And, you know, originally when I wrote up the post uh, in my reaction, I, I assumed that the Angels would, you know, then immediately go after R.A. Dickey that's obviously not happening. So it's tougher to see now how they're going to add another frontline guy uh, to their rotation. But they, they certainly need to add a, a pretty significant starting pitcher upgrade. It'll be interesting to see what they can get for Burgess or Trumbo. I think Trumbo probably has more trade value. I think Burgess is probably the better player. But if they're you know looking to get the most bang for their buck, trading Trumbo might be the way to go. So, yeah, so they, as you mentioned, they do have a couple of pieces there. I mean, one, if not both of which, they can uh, they can use for a trade like that. Uh, are there any teams that seem poised to trade away a, a you know a number one or two or three type starter uh, in in a package for both or either or either of those guys? Yeah, probably not. I mean, I think the guys who are going to get moved who are impact pitchers this winter have been moved. You know, that's James Shields and Ari Dickey, and you know Zach Greinke is a free agent. I, I mean, I don't think they're going to see anyone else at that level uh, get traded, and I don't think Trumbo or Burgess gets you you know a guy at that level by himself. I mean, there was some thought that you know Burgess might. Headline ideal for for Dickey, but given what the Blue Jays gave up, that was pretty clearly not going to be true. Um, you know, I think if if you're going to move a Burgess or a Trumbo, you're probably going to have to set your sights a little bit lower. But you can maybe go for a guy with more years of team control at a at a decent contract. Maybe you call the Mets about a John Neese. Um, it's hard to see the the Rangers trading Derek Holland within their division, but if, you know, if pitchers along that level that are you know solid average, maybe a little above average guys right now with some upside potential. Uh, who are fined for three, four, or five years, it, it, you know, haven't had their arbitration years bought out. I think that's the kind of guy you can aim more with a Burgess or Trumbo and, and probably realistically land them. Okay, and uh, does this, um, I mean, I, I guess the Hamilton signing, plus, as you mentioned, a, a couple other uh, acquisitions, uh, Tommy Hansen, of course, there are question marks associated with him. Joe Blanton uh, may or may not be better than uh, than uh, his sort of uh, than public opinion would suggest, but uh, do you think that this is a team? I mean, this is a, such a vague question. I can't believe I'm asking it. Do, are they going to be competitive? I mean, they're. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the Angels are they're, they're a good baseball team. I mean, after they called up Mike Trout last year, they played at a 93 win pace. I think uh, they're obviously not going to start Mike Trout in the minors again. There's reason to think the Pools will have a better year than he did last year, which will offset some of Trout's regression. Like, there's no way Trout has another 10 win season. I mean, there's some chance, I guess, but it's pretty slim. So I think if you look at Trout and Pools kind of offsetting each other uh, and expecting, you know, similar levels of production again from that pair next year, you could look around and say, hey, you know, maybe C.J. Wilson pitches better uh, coming off arm surgery. Maybe Jared Weaver doesn't miss a month this year. You know, Heron and uh, Santana weren't great for the Angels last year, so maybe you get a better production from Blanton, and Hanson and whoever else they bring in. Uh, you know, the bullpen could be better. Uh, they certainly had some problems in the ninth inning last year. There's, there's ways for this Angels team to be better than they were last year. I don't think it's a great team, but I think it's probably a 90-win team or so, and that's certainly enough to be competitive. Uh, okay, I want to shift gears now uh, to a move, or a pair of moves that, uh, that, that the Phillies made. I, I guess it was over the weekend or maybe just before the weekend started. 
Um, and I'm curious as to what uh, they might teach us or what they add to sort of this data pool uh, regarding how starters and relievers are, are valued. Um, they made a pair of moves, as I say. Uh, they signed one day or at one point uh, John Lannon, the sort of uh, soft-tossing left-hander, uh, to a one-year deal uh, worth $2.5 million, uh, with incentives that could uh, increase the contract uh, by another $2.5 million if he, if he uh, reaches them. And then uh, they also signed Mike Adams, a very good relief pitcher, uh, but they signed him to a much larger contract. Uh, I think it was something like uh, two years and $12 million uh, with a vesting option for another six and a half uh, for a third year. Now, it seems yeah. to me that uh, if you were spending in a sort of way that um, was sort of orthodox, uh, war-based spending, um, it would – it would be reversed. You would spend you would spend the six or seven million dollars on the starter, uh, see who you could get with that, and then uh, try and pick up a bullpen piece with uh, you know with the remaining two or two and a half million dollars, or just find someone who throws hard in your organization or it's available on a minor league deal. But uh, that's not how the Phillies went about it, and so I'm curious as to uh, your thoughts on the acquisition and and what it might say or might continue to tell us about uh, how we spend on starters versus relievers. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's no question that the biggest divide between the sabermetric community and Major League Baseball teams right now is reliever valuation. I mean, you know, they continually spend, you know, uh, twice as much per war for relievers as we think, you know, they're worth, um, or that our, our metrics suggest they're worth. And I think, you know, part of this, you know, the more I've talked to people and the more I've looked at it, is I think there's a, I don't know how much of a problem it is, there's um, some sort of uh, calculation difference between regular season performance and postseason performance that we're not accounting for. Um, the bullpen, as we've seen in October, is extremely important. If you you know if you have a really deep, strong bullpen, you can ride them really heavily in October with all the days off and the you know the playoff schedule. <coughs> uh, you can you can ride them to the World Series with a you know deficient starting rotation. You can't do that in the regular season. You need good starters in the regular season. Um, so I think in in October it flips where relievers become significantly more important and starters become a little less important, uh, especially when you don't want them facing the same lineup, you know, third time through the order. Um, so I think that there's teams that are looking towards October and saying, you know what, in the regular season, uh, this reliever is probably overpaid, but in the postseason he's going to be dramatically more important and we're going to factor that valuation into our, into our pricing model. Uh, a guy like John Lannon's going to see the postseason roster. I mean, if he's pitching for you in October, so you've done something terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think they're pricing in, uh, you know, postseason expectations, driving down the price of fourth and fifth starters who are going to get skipped over and driving up the price of, you know, high leverage relievers who could potentially be throwing uh, larger quantities of in October than they do in the regular season. Okay, and so this would be, I mean, what have you? What would you have said if they had gone after, say, uh, like Scott Baker or Francisco Liriano on a one-year deal, you know, for about five, six, seven million dollars? Or Roy Oswald, for example, who, who, you know, who's played for them before, and then signed, you know, whoever as a as a relief pitcher. Yeah, I mean, I think there's value to going that direction, and I, I think overall you might be better off. Um, but I think in terms of explaining what the Phillies are doing, I think this is kind of where the the distance comes in is, is postseason valuation. Um, you know, I think teams probably are overvaluing veteran relievers and and not understanding how inconsistent they can be, how, how much uh, 
you know, their performance can vary from one year to the next. I don't think I would have given Mike Adams a guaranteed two-year deal coming off, uh, you know, arm surgery and significant problems that caused him to miss a decent amount of time last year. Um, but he has been one of the best release pitchers in baseball for quite a while, and I don't think you're going to go get someone with Mike Adams' upside for $2.5 million in the agent market. Right. Okay, Cameron, I think you've, uh, uh, it appears that you've fulfilled your obligations. Uh, unless you, unless there was anything you wanted to add, you feel like you needed to, to be discussed that I had not uh, broached. Uh, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, this is going to be my last podcast of uh, 2012 because I'm going on vacation next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I just, I just wanted to thank you for uh, an interesting year and uh, wish you the best of holidays. Oh, my God. Uh, that was uh, shockingly earnest and sweet. Yes, yes. Well, I, you know, it's the holidays. I should try to be nice. Yeah, well, I, uh, I absolutely appreciate that. It's been a, a pleasure having you in the show. I know you enjoy, I think, every minute of uh, your, your Fangraphs audio experience. Yeah, none of the minutes I enjoy quite as many as the last. Uh, well, we should say in that last minute that uh, the Zips projections will be coming. I saw you mentioned it today in your uh, your chat, uh, so that's that's public information. Yes, Zips will be released for the first time on Wednesday. I believe we're doing the San Francisco Giants first, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so we will be rolling out Zips projections on Wednesdays and Fridays for the next few weeks, and then in January we'll be ramping them up and releasing them with more frequency. So I look forward to uh, fun lips, write-ups, including uh, pros from one Carson Fastuli. Yeah, right. And I think uh, because of that, there will be uh, there will be an inordinate amount of praise for uh, for fringe major leaguers. I I haven't uh, I haven't done completed the write-up for the Giants yet, but uh, Connor Gillespie's name will be invoked. Don't worry. Yes, multiple times, I'm sure. I, I would not be at all surprised if. Uh, you end up writing more about 4A players than you do about the most important players. No, no, no. I've uh, I uh, am aware of your concerns so far as that uh, as far as that that matter is uh, concerned, and uh, I will not be doing that. But I will be having I'll do I figure I'd do like a bench prospects section that uh, will give me a little time to uh, to participate in that. Anyway, uh, thank uh, thank you. Stick around for a second, but uh, thank you, Dave Cameron, for joining Fangraphs Audio for the last time. Uh, it sounds like in 2012. Yes, thank you, and we'll see you next year. All right, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.